Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Oliver Hughes, CEO of Tinkoff Bank, the leading neobank in Russia and one of the largest fintechs in the world. The Tinkoff ecosystem offers a full range of financial services for individuals and businesses and has evolved into one of the largest super apps of the region. Listed on the London Stock Exchange, as well as the Moscow Stock Exchange, Tinkoff has a market cap of nearly $5 billion with an ROE of 59%. Oliver joined Tinkoff as CEO in 2007, right at the start of the project, and has been at the helm every step of the way, helping Tinkoff grow into one of the world's largest digital banks with 11 million customers. Before joining Tinkoff, Oliver worked for Visa International for a decade, including serving as head of Visa in Russia from 2005 to 2007. Prior to Visa, he held various roles at Reebok, Shell UK, and the British Library. Oliver holds a Master's of Arts in International Politics from Leeds University and a Master of Science in Information Management and Technology from City University in London. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Russian and French from the University of Sussex. And now please join me in a wonderful conversation with Oliver Hughes. Oliver, thank you for joining us on the Words and Fintech podcast. We're very, very excited to have you here. Can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and, and your personal background? And for our Russian listeners, Olivier, добро пожаловать на подкаст World of Fintech. Мы очень рады, что вы присоединились к нам. И можете ли вы начать с рассказа о своей карьере и истории жизни? Мигал, огромное удовольствие слышать ваш русский прямо в касл. Здравствуйте всем, кто понимает нас. So, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'll uh, tell you a little bit about myself, so I'm, you can probably gather from my accent, I hope, that I'm, a, uh, I'm not from Russia, although I've been here for a long time. So I, I lived in the Soviet Union many years ago, uh, did a Russian degree, amongst other things, so uh, specialized in history and politics, lived in various places, and eventually wound up in Visa at the end of the 90s. Visa opened an office in Russia, and... Uh, completely by coincidence they found out that I was a Russian speaker because I was actually on the on the technology and authorization site and uh, the reason why that happened is because I was doing a training session for some Russian authorization specialists in base one anybody knows Visa knows about base one I was the base one king and they translated the interpreted internal <laughs> so I did it in Russian and this got people in London got wind of this and said why don't you go out and, uh, and build a business for us in, in Russia so I did that at uh, the end of the 2000 it came out and eventually became head of Russia for Visa. And then in 2007, moved over from Visa to, to Tinkoff, where I've been for 13 years since the very beginning with, with the team with whom I work uh, right now. So we, um, we had a, a, a very interesting time over the last few years. Now I've had a blast in, in Russia for the last 20 years. It's been extremely interesting, the place where I live, my family. So here I am. Oliver, I understand you grew up in Lancaster, but where does the Russian connection come from? It's something metaphysical by the looks of things because there is no Russian connection. But the reason why I got into Russia in the first place is because I really liked history. History was my, always my love. 
I basically did a Russian degree and got into writing a dissertation on the religious reforms of Peter the Great in the 18th century. Started studying primary sources uh, in the archives in the Soviet Union in Moscow, the very southern parts of, Moscow, of Russia. And, um, and to do so, obviously, needed Russian. So basically, I got into Russian through my interest in history, and then it kind of snowballed from that. Fascinating. So something interplanetary happened with me at some point. Definitely a fascinating history, the Russian ones. I completely understand. Uh, great. So talking a little bit about Tinkov, right? So today we're at a point where you have multiple millions of clients. You're actually targeting to reach 20 million clients. But take us a little bit to the early days when you first joined almost uh, 13, 14 years ago. Take us through the evolution of the company. What did you find when you first joined and how has it evolved over time? Sure. So I joined at the start. The colleagues who are with me today, we all built this from nothing. Oleg Tinkoff is the founder, if you think, Russia's answer to Richard Branson. He, he put the initial team together late 2006, beginning of 2007. So we've taken this through all the stages, through startup, three crises, <laughs> three rapid growth phases, and they're building up what we call our financial and lifestyle ecosystem. So we started life as a, as a branchless direct mail credit card company. So if you think Capital One in the US, early days Capital One. And I'll just tell you a little cosmic aside here. Nigel Morris, one of the co-founders of Capital One, went to my school in Lancaster, which I found out a long time after we started the project and started talking to Nigel. He's a great guy. And anyway. Neo banking school. Uh, yeah, just completely bizarre. <clears throat> so we, we built this, this credit card business as a, as a credit card monoline. And then the global financial crisis happened very early. Uh, we were stressed us very early in our existence. We changed our model because the funding model obviously stopped working. So we started taking deposits online and basically then moved everything to online, built up a, a very interesting mono product specialist business up until around 2012, 2013, when we went public. So we listed on the London Stock Exchange. About the same time, we realized, basically, as the markets realized, that we, we built a platform which could do a lot more than just credit cards and deposits. So we were underutilizing this powerful platform. Well, what was our platform? And what is our platform today? It's digital customer acquisition. Everywhere in Russia, because we're completely branchless, so we don't have any geographical footprint. We're everywhere. And uh, we're the best in, in finance performance uh, marketing. In Russia, for sure, maybe, maybe elsewhere as well. We were the first guys to open up uh, internet and, and then digital acquisition in general. The second block of our platform is our remote call center. We have the largest uh, home-based call center in Europe, maybe one of the biggest in the world, where there's, depending on the day, five to 15,000 people doing calls. So it's servicing, but it's also outbound calling to manage our marketing funnel. There's some peculiarities of, of Russia, which means that we, we have, to, have to do this. The third part of the, uh, of the platform is our fulfillment, our distribution platform. So this is where the, the only part in the Tinkoff model where we're actually on the ground. So we have 3,000 people, 6,000 boots on the ground, and these are the guys doing our deliveries. Why do we have to do deliveries? Because we're the largest door-to-door delivery company in Russia, which sounds a bit bizarre for a financial player. The central bank still requires that we have a face-to-face -face meeting for what they call identification purposes. So you have to have a physical piece of paper, signature, check passport, photograph, all that sort of stuff. 
And to open a bank account, you have to be able to do this process. And to do that at scale across Russia and to take deposits and then do all the other stuff that we, uh, we did later, we had to establish this, um, this, this delivery force, which is actually now um, a very strong competitive advantage because these KYC requirements still exist and will do sometimes come. And then the fourth block is our servicing, which is obviously mobile app and what used to be the internet bank, uh, chatbots, a voice assistant, and all the other good stuff that goes in that and some call centers as well. So this, this platform we started using for loads of other stuff. We started using it for third-party products, for example, mortgage, which we don't do on our own balance sheet. We launched a brokerage business. We built a, a small and medium business, transactional business, and then started just going, just started going to SME lending. Uh, we built a, a huge current account business, so basically mobile app and a, and a card. So if you think, you know, whatever, Revolut, Monzo, Chime, uh, all of these these guys these days, we've been doing it for a long, long time. We built a long online insurer and a lot of other stuff. And we're the second, sorry, the third largest online merchant acquirer in Russia, and that's a, a very rapidly growing business. So we moved into all, all sorts of directions, built, went into all the financial verticals that we felt we should be in started scaling up those businesses, um, including, by the way, a, a virtual mobile operator. And then at some point we decided that it's great being in all these different financial verticals and our um, platform you know, is basically infinitely scalable and enables, enables us to do this so we can grow from our current 11 million customers in the ecosystem to 20 million, so you're quite right with that. But we also realized that we need some more ingredients uh, in our bake. So we went into what we call lifestyle. And this is travel services. We built a, an online travel agent. This is entertainment. We took a stake in one of the largest online ticket operators in Russia for concerts and theatre and that kind of thing. We built a, a, a sorry, built a virtual mobile operator, as I said, to go into mobile services. We have our own content through this thing called Tinkoff Journal, which has nine million unique visitors per month. So it's one of the largest online independent online resources in Russia. It's uh, non-commercial, and that content get, gets put into a mobile app and tons of other stuff, shopping, loyalty, and this drives engagement. It drives our mal and thou, obviously, but it enables us to basically increase the lifetime value of the customer because the more they're in our interfaces, the more sticky they are, but also the more we can cross-sell, and we monetize them through lots of different business plans. So that's, that's the kind of evolutionary path, and we're still building out some tons of growth to go, and uh, having a great time. That's incredible. You're definitely taking the super app route, right? But take us through also some of the challenges that you've experienced. You, you mentioned three crises for a financial institution that's certainly uh, not easy. Uh, what are some of the other challenges that you've encountered along the way? Sure. So three crises in, uh, not in 100 years, three crises in 13 years. <laughs> That's quite a long crisis in a relatively short period of time. But um, we were actually fortunate in having the global financial crisis, which is obviously a vicious crisis, very early in our existence. This maybe sounds a bit paradoxical to say that, but we got inoculated. Uh, we understood how to, how to use the levers and press the buttons in our business, how to ramp up quickly when we had funding and the external operating environment was looking good, how to slam on the brakes very quickly when we need to, cut costs, go into kind of hibernation, button down the hatches and, and ride the storm. And, uh, and that's, that skill of, of being able to adapt very quickly, flexibly, and use all the, let's say, 
uh, built-in competitive advantages and scale and cost advantages in our business model, because we don't have any physical infrastructure, enabled us to ride through all the crises that we've been through, including the current one. Um, but the, that's obviously not the only challenges. And so we had funding challenges, and we had all sorts of weird and wonderful ways of raising funds, including the Swedish Eurobond back in our early existence. So funding was, it was um, always tricky until we really learned how to switch on attached to deposits, retail deposits. Now we've got a very big, very stable retail deposit base, trust in our brand, and, uh, and it's just a case of uh, ticking up the, the rates or doing a bit of marketing, ratcheting up the, uh, the online acquisition and the deposits come in when we need them. But also scaling up, obviously. So when you, when you scale up a business and get to 11 million customers and still more, more so 20 million customers or 30 million customers, then obviously you get all sorts of scaling uh, issues arising all of it under the bonnet. Hopefully under the bonnet, and your customers don't see it, but there's all sorts of stuff around system architecture we're 13 years old, so we've had to update our systems as well and update our practices so that the mobile app, um, the super app, used to be fairly monolithic. We've had to break it down into microservices for all the different business lines and products to make sure that they can knock out stuff really quickly. Uh, time to market. So all the stuff you'd expect in, in a business that's scaling constantly and launching new, new business lines. So organizational design, organizational culture, keeping the organization flat, and speeding things up and keeping them as quick as possible. They're all huge challenges for any, any fintech obviously as they get bigger. Absolutely. How many people today at Tinkoff? So we have around 3,000 people in our headquarters in Moscow, then another 1,000 developers in the regions. So out of those uh, in our various development hubs, they're all, all across Russia, uh, 11 different locations. So that's 4,000 people of whom around two-thirds are tech specialists of one kind or another. And then we have another 3,000 guys in the field, our smart careers, as I mentioned earlier, and then another, depending on the day, 15,000 doing service, because unfortunately, you can't have a pure mobile service as you can in other markets, uh, because of the way the Russian market sets up from a legislative point of view. Uh, but that, that'll change over time. That's a robust workforce. How do you manage to recruit some of the best talent in the market while keeping up with the exponential growth that you've experienced? Sure. So having, uh, having remote working was very important. So opening up endless uh, physical call centers was just not going to work because it's expensive, it's clunky. You know, sometimes the service isn't that great and it's certainly not flexible. And, and you're tied to different geographical locations where there tends to be all sorts of local issues with competitors coming and opening up in call centers and stealing all these stuff. You know, it's just classic, classics, um, which all sorts of institutions encounter. So we were the first guys to design, to build a home call center, as of which I mentioned earlier. So we got around 15,000 people registered in this system, but there tends to be three, 5,000 people working in any given week. And it's infinitely scalable. So anybody in the Russian-speaking world, which isn't just Russia, can, can log on and do various activities. We break it down so that it's uh, secure, so there's no personal data going anywhere. But so that was one of the ways that we, uh, we managed to scale up on the operational side. And then if you're thinking about HQ, Russia is hugely fortunate to have an amazing education system. Some of the strongest physicists and math mathematicians in the world, as we all know, could you know, in Silicon Valley, a lot of them have built very successful businesses. They, they're extremely bright. 
they make some of the best developers, designers, analysts, data scientists in the world. So we have this abundance of amazing intellectual capital. It's just a fantastic place to work with, fantastic people. But there's obviously got a lot of competition. So there isn't just competition in the local tech scene in Russia. And we have our own big tech here. So it's kind of like a walled garden in Russia where you have a you don't have your Googles and your Facebooks or Alibaba or whoever it might be, they being the dominance, um, the homegrown players, Mailroom, Yandex, Vito, various other huge players. So there's a lot of local competition, very stiff competitions from some excellent tech companies. But also we compete with Europe to a certain extent, but definitely Silicon Valley and, and the US in general, especially when the ruble tanks, which it does from time to time, and the dollar the salary is something that can very attractive. So it, it's, it's difficult. So... Let's say not difficult, but there are challenges. We've had to do a lot with our HR brand. Because let's face it, if you're a good tech guy, you're not going to go and work for a bank. You don't want to work for a bank. Working for a bank is, is not very interesting and it's not very um, appealing, not very trendy, let's say, at the end of the day. And so we, this wasn't done deliberately. This is just how it happened as we, we evolved over time. We became a technology company. We didn't start off as a technology company per se, but we're very data-driven, very analytical, total focus on customer experience, UX, the interface, how all that fits together. And therefore, there's lots of interesting projects for young tech talent to come and do. We delegate to them, let's say extremely, it's extreme delegation. So you've got some very young guys. Our average age in the offices and in headquarters is 27. So we're very young. And you get young guys at 25 who are managing huge projects of tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. So the ownership that we give them, the entrepreneurial approach, the very flat organizational structure with empowerment and delegation and responsibility very quickly means that it's a very interesting place to work, very dynamic in, in a very interesting sphere, fintech and Russia. This culture, I think, of that you're describing definitely sounds like a departure from big Russian corporates. I don't know if you agree with that. And if so, how has been your experiencing recruiting people from maybe the competition or people who have experience in the Russian workforce? That's a really great, great question. And the answer is we don't. We don't take people from other corporates <laughs> because they've got the wrong behaviors. They've got the wrong... Unfortunately, DNA, let's put it that way. So, so there's a special takeoff DNA, which we're extremely jealous of. We constantly cultivate, we inculcate into um, uh, all of our colleagues. And uh, so what we do is we take people as young as possible, as green as possible, from the physics institutes, the mathematics institutes, sometimes you know, finance, econ economics, and engineering, chemistry, and, and other adjacent areas. But it tends to be mathematics and physics. We've got a huge number of them. We're pretty infiltrated, if that's not a bad word, uh, embedded, that's a better word, into the leading institutes in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and other cities across Russia. And we recruit them, basically, while they're still studying. We have this thing called a fintech uh, school where people can study uh, evening class, and we have a trainees in the summer, tons of stuff that we do. We, we have our own faculty in one of the leading mathematics, uh, physics institutes, sorry. So we do tons of stuff to recruit and uh, make our um, contribution to society and education as well because we've got lots of interesting R&D projects going on in machine learning and data management and whatever. So there's things that we can, we can actually contribute back as well. It's very important. And this enables us to, to bring people with the right 
mentality, skills, mindset, and enrich our culture. Obviously, we hire people from the market as well, so it's not just you know young talent coming in from scratch. Um, but we try and keep it minimum to a minimum, and they tend to come from the most progressive companies, some of whom I mentioned earlier before. So not from companies where you get things out the ground and <laughs> or some stodgy, let's say, uh, state-owned institutions or, or even non-state-owned institutions. That's not our bag. Sounds like a winning strategy. I've actually been to some of those uh, competitors, big tech in Russia that you mentioned, and it felt like being in Google. <laughs> cool. And, and so you actually, you've been a publicly listed company for a while now. I think you were listed on the London Stock Exchange in 2013, right? Right. Now, you also decided to list on the Russian Stock Exchange last year in 2019. Can you take us through that reasoning and, and how did that decision come about? And perhaps is it related to a recent boom that you've seen in Russia for retail investors, actually, that perhaps is driven in part by Tinko? So, so let me start at the end of my answer and then work backwards. Um, because some people actually don't, don't believe me when I say this, but we genuinely did not think, it's not that we didn't believe or, or we were deliberately trying to tap into this, we genuinely didn't think about the, the interconnection between our brokerage business, which I'll explain in a minute, um, liquidity that may be there, additional liquidity in our, in our stock, in our the daily trading volumes from Moscow Stock, uh, stock Exchange. So we, we listed in London in October 2013, had a few ups and downs, we went through another crisis, 2014, 2015, straight afterwards. Then there was a certain amount of, I can't call it political pressure, but desire uh, in Russia for us to list on Moscow Stock Exchange. And to be honest with you, we didn't really see any particular upside for a long time. Just you know, going to be more overhead, not necessarily any, any benefit for us. And we're you know, a lean and mean company. We, we don't like having uh, additional overhead for, for no good business reason. But eventually we, we decided that the time had come. Now we were a big story in Russia, big employer, we're a big company, we're a big uh, stock. And uh, it was time for us to list in Moscow. So that was one half of the answer. The other half of the answer, which, um, which the, the story that starts three years ago, was basically Oleg Tinkoff, our founder, said, why can't I buy stocks from my mobile phone? Um, and this is really before anybody had heard of Robin Hood and various other um, players of that nature. So, you know, there were some moves afoot. In fact, this may be three and a half years ago. So this was, you know, a fair while ago and, and, and really only had things like E-Trade and Schwab and whatever uh, that, were, that were on anybody's radar, certainly in Russia. Um, so we started thinking about this. We had a, a large chunk of the young professionals in Russia through our Tinkoff Black current account product, which is the, the mobile app and, and card that I was talking about before. So think Monzo inside Tinkoff. So we had lots of the right type of customer who have a bit of money, want to invest, deposit rates are coming down really quite quickly. So uh, five years ago, you could put your rubles on a deposit for a year and get 15%. If you get 15% insured by the state, why on earth would you go and you know, play on the stock exchange or, or do anything else? Uh, or buy bonds, which are lower yielding. But the rates came down, and now they're down to 4 5% in rubles. Um, and technology came through. So the, the mobile apps we have on, obviously, a big mobile development team, and they can, they can do all sorts of amazing um, things with, with UX and interface. We decided to try it. Um, so we partnered initially 
stuck out this mobile app for uh, direct market access for trading, but you're basically going to be getting just basically a kind of MVP, but using somebody else's backend. It flew, it took off instantaneously. Uh, we got huge traction, really big uh, amounts of applications, lots of interest, lots of activity. And we opened up, we realized we tapped into this new team. So it seemed, because before this, there was no brokerage, there was other than that. Maybe, well, definitely less than half a million active brokerage accounts. It was the, the, the realm of the rich, if they didn't have their money in Switzerland or whatever, and certainly not for, for mass retail investors. And let's say mass affluent retail investors, to be precise. So we brought all this in-house. We built our own uh, backend, uh, built the, our platform, completely broadened our product um, offering, uh, segmented. So we have mass retail investors. We have kind of day traders, semi-professionals, and then we have premium customers who have more balance and, and need more diversification. Built all this out, and we now... Uh, number one, in terms of active accounts, we have 2.4 million brokerage accounts opened, and that's really happened in about 18 months, two years. Um, we, we're now one of the biggest um, in terms of volume on both of the um, stock exchanges, Moscow and St. Petersburg, and it's a, it's a runaway success. So we're onboarding basically more than 100,000 new customers each month, uh, and it's just going uh, sky high. It's blown a hole in <laughs> in the right way into uh, into investing in Russia because we just turned everything on its head. And some, obviously, market players have followed. But what this has done completely unintentionally to our stock is that a lot of the trading has moved. So we're still doing lots of volume in London, but obviously our, our overall trading has grown as our uh, stock has, has become more interest, interesting to investors all over the world. But now two-thirds of our daily trading is done on... Um, the Moscow Stock Exchange, and 20 to 30% of that are our own customers who've come through the Tinkoff mobile app, uh, Tinkoff Investments. So, you know, these were completely unintended consequences, but they, they kind of, um, the beneficial, usually beneficial, and it's, it's been a phenomenal success. So um, we're very pleased with where it's going. And two million customers today, we think we can have 10 million customers. We're, gonna, we're going for it big time. It's an amazing market to be. That's incredible. Now, Oliver, we are obviously going through a, a major crisis, which is the COVID-19 crisis. And this has impacted the entire world. Every single company out there has been impacted one way or another. How has it affected you and, and also your clients? And how have you responded to this crisis? Sure. Just two parts of the answer. The first is what happened to the business on the client facing side. And the second is how work practices and how we manage this. So on the client-facing side, uh, how we work with customers, nothing changed. <laughs> because we're online. Uh, we're online. We have this uh, fulfillment capability to basically someone that um, applies online. Uh, they can download the mobile app or they can go to one of our landings, uh, landing pages on the web. They fill out an application form. And we will deliver the product back to them, whatever it might be, a SIM card. A lot, a lot of it's moving to eSIM now. It could be an insurance policy. You're insuring your car. Maybe you're looking for a partner product. It could be a credit card, whatever it is. It will be delivered back to you the next day, anywhere in Russia. So we had to obviously adapt a little bit the, uh, the fulfillment process because people wanted to make sure that uh, they were safe in, in terms of dealing with our smart couriers. So we gave them PPE and all the stuff you'd expect to see, lots of new processes. We also rolled out a virtual card. despite So 
working within the regulatory requirements for face-to-face -face meeting and ID identification process, we were able to allow people to download the mobile app, knock, in a, knock out a virtual card, stick it in their wallet, Google wallet, Apple wallet, whatever, start purchasing straight away, and then have a slightly postponed meeting, all within, as I say, the bounds of the regulatory requirements. So it was new innovation coming through. So basically, a lot of our parts of our business actually accelerated because other banks couldn't do business. We saw that lots of people had more time on their hands, some things that they put off because they didn't have time or inclination to before they started to um, you know, dig around and experiment and, and, uh, and apply to us. Existing customers had more time to spend in our mobile app than the super app to see what other products and services that we're offering in terms of lifestyle and whatever. And uh, cross-sell took off. Uh, we found other ways of uh, speeding up, for example, increasing flow on I mean, Tinkoff investments. I mentioned DCM on the Tinkoff mobile site. So tons of, of things started speeding up. Obviously, there was uh, an impact, um, especially in April when, when lockdown uh, started and COVID really hit Russia. But it was actually quite short-lived. And even small businesses were one of the worst affected in the world over, not just in Russia. They bounced back quite quickly, and now we're back up to pre-crisis volumes on small business. So, so we, because of our business model, because of our, the way we approach this, um, we were able to manage the business more or less without any interruption, and actually, in some cases, grow it. But behind the scenes, there was a bit of upheaval uh, because we're, we're an online company, and um, we were able to move things or change things very quickly on the hoof. But a lot of us sat in offices. <laughs> a lot of us didn't. We sat at home in, in various um, uh, remote call centers or developers sitting at home uh, you know, doing remote work. But a lot of us were sitting in offices. Within a week, we were one of the first companies in Russia to move to the cloud. We moved everybody into the cloud. And I had uh, quite a few question marks about this as to what it would do to our work practice could we keep up communication productivity to my pleasant surprise we become more productive more creative more innovative communication it's become a little bit more one-dimensional if you like but uh, but it's, it's held up well and basically we've discovered that we don't need to go back to the office so we have an office we're building a new office for uh, expanded capacity, so instead of 4,000, it's going to be 6,000 people. We're hiring developers and uh, uh, lots of uh, people on the, on the LNL side and whatnot. But um, the office will not really be the place you go to nine till six, five days a week. Obviously, it's going to be a place where you'll turn up more or less when you want to, or when there's a meeting, when there's a team building exercise for training, when you want to have some physical contact with you when we're able to with your colleagues. So it's going to be a completely different paradigm to the one that we we left pre-COVID. Yeah, I can I can see a lot of parallels between you and another other neobanks that we've actually interviewed and one of them being Newbank, right? Similar, similar story from David. Now, can you tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial, particularly fintech ecosystem? In Russia, you know, I understand it's uh, one of the most active sectors, and partially that has been because it's encouraged by the regular. You've also talked about uh, how the regular is itself an innovator, right? So, very interested to hear your views on this topic. 
Sure. So we, as I mentioned earlier, we have um, a bit of a walled garden. So we have our own big tech companies. So the number one search engine, the number one messenger, the number one classified player, the one number one e-commerce player, more or less, uh, they're all Russian. So they're all homegrown. In Russia, there's a large state-owned sector. So some of them are doing some very interesting online stuff as well. So the innovation comes from within. And there's some amazing stories. So, for example, one of the, the interesting things about the Russian financial sector is that we have some financial platforms out of which we're building ecosystems. So going into other areas, there are two of us. So it's Bank, the largest state-owned bank in Russia. They've done an amazing digital transformation over the last 10, 15 years, 10 years. They are one of the most technological and sophisticated large banks in the world. I would say probably the most, which sounds maybe a little bit surprising for people, but they're, they're amazing. And Tinkoff, a very, very different beast, very entrepreneurial, totally privately owned, uh, unaffiliated, no state um, ownership, obviously, whatsoever. We go the organic route, so we build our, our own services, typically, or partner, and put them in super app, and add categories all the time. Whereas Burbank goes through the M&A route and buys basically a, a tons of, um, of companies that they think are complementary. So coming back to us, we had our financial and insurance core services for business, investors, savings, borrowing, whatever it might be. And then beyond that, we built out into, uh, into other services. So we added categories basically every few days. We added uh, e-commerce uh, last week in the super app. We're able to do this because of the large amount of like-minded online companies, huge amount of different service providers, all, all very technologically enabled, everybody has APIs, a very, let's say, market-oriented business environment, especially on the finance side. And as you quite rightly said, Miguel, this is facilitated by the fact that we have not just um, a progressive central bank as a regulator, but a disruptor. <laughs> so they actually disrupt the market. They rolled out a faster payment system and they're looking at open banking initiatives, although it may, may not actually be necessary. They're looking at replacing identification requirements, physical KYC that I mentioned a couple of times with um, a central biometrics database, which is already in production, um, but it's, um, there's a few kinks they need to iron out for it to, to take off and scale up and become popularized. And tons of other stuff. Um, they're, they're, they're rolling out QR payments as a, an alternative to the card payment systems, the card rails. So, so there's tons of stuff going on, and they're constantly pushing out new initiatives to keep the market on its toes. So the top five, in, uh, one of whom are Tinkoff, don't get too cozy and constantly shaking up. So, and this gives us new technologies and new systems which we can use to push change through as well. That's what we like. So it's, uh, it's an amazing, amazing market to be in. But there's, there's a but which is that because of the Russian market, the capital markets as they've um, evolved over the years and uh, geopolitics and various other stuff that everybody probably understands on this call, in this podcast, there's a dearth of investment capital. So VC is, is practically negligible. Private equity is underdeveloped. So there are some private equity investors, some very good ones, but they're... No, few and far between, let's put it that way. So the private equity 
fueled fintech movements that you'll see you've seen in Europe and Scandinavia in the UK and some other parts of Europe now continental Europe and obviously the US and Latin America, not to mention China, you don't have that in Russia. So if you're going to be a successful fintech, you have to stand on your own two feet. So we had some um, private equity in the beginning, so obviously equity from our founder in the beginning, and then capital came from a little bit of private equity in the beginning, and then the private equity market died basically in 2014. Not completely, but it's uh, very difficult to, to find capital. So it's not like there's tons of startups around. It's quite a consolidated market. The barriers to entry are quite high. So if you can't stand on your own two feet, you're not financially self-sufficient, you're going to die. That's it. You can't have a loss-making model burning through equity um, indefinitely. It's a very different market. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely different than other markets, but that also means you're building very lasting and resilient companies, I guess. How about the road ahead? How do you envision the next few years for think of uh, you've mentioned your ambition to double or even triple your customer base. Perhaps do you have international ambitions or are you planning to continue growing locally? What's your take on this? Sure. So we see huge opportunities for us to continue to build out our financial businesses. Insurance, we haven't found the magic ingredient yet. We haven't cracked the code. We still really believe in it. It's right for disruption. There's some, let's say, old-style incumbents, and you know we, we've got to get it together there. So there's another huge opportunity. There's tons of adjacent business, business areas where we just started to put out the dip our toes in. We can definitely double our, our customer base. If we find the right growth hacks, we can maybe triple our customer base. And if you look at our run rates in terms of new customers, new account openings, then you, know, you, you can see that we can get there. We have some businesses which are firing on all cylinders and driving our bottom line growth, not just the top line and not just customer numbers. And we're only just unlocking the internal potential in our ecosystem through cross-sell. So right now we're at 1.2, 1.3 re revenue-bearing products per customer. We think we can get that up to 1.6, 1.7 in the next three years or so, and maybe up to two products per customer in the next, I don't know, maybe a little bit longer than three years. So... There's tons of value to be unlocked in what we're already doing and what we've already built. And every time we, we've gone abroad, we've been abroad, we've had a, had a deep dive in fintech in the UK, in Latin America, or in Asia, Africa, we looked at all sorts of different opportunities. Each time we've come back and doubled back down in Russia because it's a huge, huge opportunity. We, we know how to disrupt, we know how to execute. So to distract the management team, focus and capital, is actually risky, so you have an opportunity cost involved in that. So each time we've, we've decided we need to uh, come back and, and redouble our efforts in Russia. And that's where we are now. But um, some of our former colleagues from Tinkoff, who recently left the Tinkoff team, who, who basically have, have built some successful businesses inside Tinkoff, have gone to do their own project called Vivid Money, uh, which has just launched in Germany literally a couple of, years, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the financial backer is Tinkoff Group for the time being. And uh, then they'll attract um, private equity companies and grow that business into a big a continental European business and then maybe even a global business. So they have the, the Tinkoff DNA. And we have the upside as being an initial investor. And we'll get some learnings from them as well because they have a different tech, tech stack. 
And so you could say that we are entering the market, but in a slightly different way than uh, maybe you, you asked in your question. That makes sense. Oliver, we have quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs or are perhaps thinking about taking that jump. They're aspiring founders. You've built a fantastic company and brand in a challenging environment. I'm sure they can learn a thing or two from you. Sure. So uh, it's always about the numbers. You have to be in the numbers. You have to have the information systems. You have to be analytical because obviously everything about online is all about marketing funnels and conversion. Managing any portfolio you have is always about the numbers. So you have to be in the numbers. You can't just be entrepreneurial and you don't have marketing flow and all the rest of it. You need that, but be in the numbers. I would say when you go through a crisis, it's a useful time. It's also the week from the chaff. In financial businesses, it tends to be a cyclical business. You should welcome them, but it's not about growth when you get into the, uh, into the crisis. Yeah, nobody's going to reward you for growing during a crisis if then you blow up. So you have to react quickly sometimes pretty fiercely adapt to what's going on around don't be afraid to cut and go into a different mode survival mode especially in the early days when you're a startup and you're probably not like, making money focus on the bottom line for us is, is a religion yeah we run our business based on npv modeling so every single decision we take be it a lending business a payments transactional business an insurance business whatever it's always based on npv horizontal economics and inside our NPV modeling, we have a 30% cost of equity hurdle rate, basically. So if it doesn't give us a 30% hurdle, uh, um, return on equity, minimum 30% that we don't do it. Or if it doesn't bring us customers, new customers, then we, we can sell other products, but it gives us a 30% uh, return, minimum 30% return. That focus on the bottom line, focus on reaching break-even and focus on profitability is a necessity in Russia, as I was explaining earlier, but it's also what means um, that we have a sustainable business that's self-funding. Our high ROEs are over 50%, mean that we don't need to run to our investors regularly and ask for money. We, uh, we generate our own capital. Also, I would say <laughs> it's not very fashionable to be a balance sheet lender, but it's, it's banking at the end of the day. Yeah, so maybe you're in a niche part of the value chain in fintech, maybe your B2B, you know, there's all sorts of different business models, but if from the consumer or the customer facing side, it could be consumer, it could be business, you're lending. <laughs> if you're not lending, you're only in payments. We don't believe that's a sustainable business because you can't make money in payments. You're already thin margin if you have one at all. You're going to get eroded away by competition. Marketplaces aren't scalable. PFM is very, very narrow niche and more of a fad. You know, you have to have all of these elements, but at the end of the day, you take deposits to lend them out, and that's where you make the money. So don't be afraid. Uh, don't allow lending to be stigmatized. There are good ways of doing it, and that's how the banking model works. Sorry, guys. <laughs> oh, there's probably a few other tips. Maybe I'll think of them later, but that's how I would look at it. Thank you for that. And now before we go, our final question, we always love to learn about some of the personal side of our guests. Uh, you, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your hobbies outside of Tinkoff, and particularly now in the times of COVID, I'm sure that has changed a little bit. Well, I have a, a quite a big family, four kids. So um, actually COVID has been great. I've been working obviously all hours that God sends, as I'm sure everybody has during the COVID crisis. 
um, now through Zoom as opposed to in the office, but um, or in planes. But it means I can see my family more, which is absolutely excellent. I do quite a lot of sport, running and, and swimming and, and things like that. But what really gets me fired up are mountains. So I went up Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe, if you count uh, the Caucasus as Europe. There's a bit of a geographical debate that goes on about that. That's a, quite a tough climb because it's, it's quite high, high altitude, 5,700 metres. And I'm going to uh, Kazbek, which is the second highest mountain in, in Russia in a few weeks' time. So I, I like that. I like stone circles. Uh, that's my big hobby, megalithic science. So these are Celtic circles, which are, are scattered around the United Kingdom, northern France, a little bit in northern Spain. And actually various, various other places you come across Celtic-like, um, let's say, contemporary structures to the Celts, the ancient Celts, which is kind of 3,500 to 500 BC. So everybody knows about Stonehenge, but that's the uh, overpopular version. I've never been there myself, but I've been to hundreds of other stone circles and I, I measure them, I photograph them. They're normally in amazing places in very remote locations, normally with water or the sea, um, not far away, mountains, and it's uh, amazing experiences, communing with nature and, and uh, our ancestors. So that's, that's probably one of my hidden hobbies that I really love. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, Oliver, this has been very, very interesting. I have no doubt our, our listeners will learn a ton. Uh, I have enjoyed this and we are very grateful for you joining us. And we, please, and, and we can't wait to see your future success. Thank you so much. Good to meet you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.